This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Hello, uh, you're listening to Literati Glitterati, a weekly book show about stories and reading. Welcome. It's really lovely to host you. I am broadcasting to you live from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Uh, shout out to Bunjil, the great creative spirit. Um, ludicrous and absurd and spooky and fun are words I would use to describe Bora Chung's Cursed Bunny, uh, which is our feature interview on the show today. I'm very excited about it. Bora has travelled far to join us live in the studio. Uh, you can also go and see her tonight, in fact, at the Wheeler Centre as a part of their World of Words uh, series that they're doing. Uh, she's speaking tonight. She's speaking with the wonderful short story writer Paige Clark, and she's going to be speaking to us imminently, so please do stay tuned. It'll be a really fun show. Coming up a little bit later, I'll also be chatting with John Tiar, who is the editor of Edition 3 of Debris magazine, which is going to be launching tonight at the Alderman. It's going to be a really fun show. Um, We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. I reckon you're going to get some good recommendations for things to read, so please do stick around. Triple R. I am absolutely delighted today to be hosting Bora Chung, the author of Cursed Bunny, a delightful, genre-defying collection of short stories that I found to be horrific, hilarious, fantastic, surreal. Um, In this collection, a woman is haunted by her own bodily waste. That's the very first story. In the first paragraph, in fact, um, (laughs) a monster appears from the toilet and calls the character Mummy. Um, A woman falls pregnant after taking the birth control pill for too long and is forced to find a husband uh, before the baby is born. A young boy is forced to confront the monster within and a father allows a son to feast on the blood of his own daughter. Um, it's an extraordinary collection in terms funny, horrifying, science fictiony, fantastical. And the author of that very book, Bora Chung, is here in the studio with us today. Welcome, Bora. Hello. How are you? I'm nervous. Yeah. Thank you. Understandably so, but. Hopefully we'll have a fun little chat. I want to ask you, based on that very first story that just surprised and delighted me so much, tell us, why are our bodies so disgusting? Um, because we're alive. We kind of can't help it. It's an inevitable thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, what is it about sort of, I mean, the stories do defy genre they've been loosely kind of put in the kind of horror science fiction sort of category what draws you to that to that mode of writing because I can do anything the genre allows me to go everywhere and anywhere and just tell whatever kind of story that I find uh, adequate is not the right word but I I find the storyline adequate so that it just it just seems it just seems normal for me, but people find it weird. Ah, okay. So there's like a real freedom in that form. It yes. allows you to go anywhere. It sounds almost like you write the stories that feel true to you, and later on somebody puts that puts that yes. kind of bracket on it. Yes. Yeah. Right. 
Um, now, you've written a number of short story collections and a number of novels as well. Cursed Bunny is the first one that's been translated into English um, and it has been shortlisted for the International Booker Prize Award. Extraordinary. Thank you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, I know that you're a translator yourself, um, yes. what is the process like of being translated? Um, Anton picked me and then I didn't believe uh, anybody would want to actually translate me. So I said, okay, do whatever you want. And then in 2021, he shipped me the books. So in the meantime, um, he won the Penheim grant with a sample ex uh, translation of Chris Bunny. So he worked miracles and I have no idea how he did it. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I think that it's amazing and quite inspiring that as someone who has, you know, that knowledge and experience of being a translator that you were able to be so entirely hands-off, I feel like I would perhaps be a terror. <laughs> um, can you tell me a little bit about what makes a good translation for you? Uh, I have no idea. And the authors that I translate are mostly dead. They're either killed by the Nazis or killed by Stalin. So um, I didn't intend to be hands-off. I'm just used to not being able to communicate with the author um, unless I had a seance. Mm. Um, so a uh, good translation, I have no idea. But uh, when it comes to the English translation, Anton is a native speaker of Korean, so I didn't have to explain anything to him. But his English is better than his Korean, which is proven by his double booker um, long list. So uh, I just trust him completely. And I think that would make a good translation, trusting your translator. Yeah, trusting your translator, giving them freedom. You write and speak across several different languages. I wanted to ask you about uh, the experience of that, um, I suppose. Does it... Do you, do you think and write differently in different languages? I think so. Um, and that kind of ruins every single language that I speak. So I'm, I'm not... like I don't speak normally or write normally in any language. Um, when, <laughs> when I write in Korean, I, I think of the Polish and Russian grammars because I've been a teacher of Russian language for 12 years or more. Um, so my Korean sentences sound weird and my editors don't like it. But to me, that's the way it has to sound. That's the way it has to express that particular meaning. So, um, yeah, I speak weird. Talk to me about weird because I mean when I read this book I was completely delighted by the language. It was at once sort of very simple and quite clear and then at once uh, sort of fable-like and also comic. It lands on these fantastic, there's a great pulsing beat to it, you know. It, it lands in a way that makes you that makes you laugh or that makes you take a deep breath. Um, is that... Is that how it reads in the is that is that what you're talking about when you're talking about this weird this weird quality? I hope so. Um some of the people like uh, the Shakespeare guy in the embodiment mm. um that actually happened to a friend of my aunt's. 
Um, so my aunt is in her 70s now, but when she was young, um, and when she was a young maiden, um, one of her friends had a stalker um, who called her at home because back then nobody had a cell phone, um, who called her at home every night and read in broken English from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and was immensely annoying. Um, so that guy actually existed. He, he's not a figment of my imagination. Um, so people are weirder, like reality is weirder than my any uh, stretch of my imagination could reach. Wow. Um, the mind boggles at that. That that's fantastic, and it. I mean, it's so so true, isn't it? Like the. Um, isn't that annoying? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit more about your sort of your inspiration? It sounds like you're a great listener. Um, you're able to kind of catalogue other people's stories and re reimagine them. Um, I find reality weirder than than anything like uh home sweet home the first part actually happened to a friend of mine and later i heard from a completely unrelated person uh some random recent reader that the same thing happened to her except for except for uh the except for people dying in uh Crockpot. Um, so that macabre um, incident didn't happen in reality, but everything else kind of still did happen. So um, I came to think of myself as a writer of realism or maybe hyper-realism, not genre-defying uh, weird or supernatural or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. This is, this is so informative for me. Bora, off mic, just before we were having a really interesting conversation, you are a writer and a translator as well. You've undergone this interesting experience of having your work translated from the Korean into English and French and various other languages and uh, you've run into this kind of uh, limitation, I suppose, on your work where people are coming to you and they're asking you what, what gender your characters are. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Especially the robot in Goodbye, My Love. And uh, the model for <laughs> Model 1, the first love, the protagonist's first love in that story is my phone, uh, my BlackBerry phone, um, which died uh, very sadly. Um, it doesn't charge anymore, but I still love it. And um, it's a phone. It doesn't have gender. So... I, I don't know what to say, but um, Anton does, just decided on the gender of Model 1, um, and uh, my French translator um, wanted to ask me, because you have to have a gendered pronoun to build a grammatically correct sentence in French, and uh, it's a robot, and I don't know the gender. <laughs> Fantastically, like... Um... A interesting kind of context to have that that conversation around around gender um, when you're being forced to, to kind of uh, say if your blackberry is either a male or female and there is no other option. Very very strange. Triple R on FM digital online via the app. Bora, can you tell us a little bit about the title story from this collection? It's called Curse Bunny, and I'd be really interested to hear um, 
you know, in your own words, what, what the story is about and where the inspiration for it came from? Uh, around 2003, um, there was this big scandal in Korea uh, surrounding a little company that produced dumplings. Um, it's still called the garbage dumpling scandal um, because um, uh, there was a report about their product that um, the company used um, un unsafe, um, inedible, inedible ingredients in their dumplings, and therefore the name Garbage Dumpling Scandal. And there was actually a, an official government investigation. And in the process of the investigation, the owner of that company took his own life. Um, he was not even 40. He was a very young guy, and he was survived by his wife and his son, and it turns out that he did nothing wrong. Um, a dumpling is, by definition, um, a, a, a kind of food item that wraps up ugly ingredients. You know, you <laughs> chop up uh, ingredients that are ugly but um, fully edible, and you uh, package it in uh, the dumpling uh, cover so that people would eat it. And that's what the guy did. And he was doing really well, and he was um, selling his dumplings not only in Korea but overseas as well. And it turns out that big corporations wanted the market share and didn't want that threat um, of this little guy, little uh, but very strong company that produced very tasty dumplings. So they effectively killed him off, like literally killed him off. And I was in the U.S. Um, back in the days, um, and I only saw the headlines, so I, I believed, I was led um, by the headlines to believe that the guy did something wrong and the company was producing bad dumplings. Um, and a lot of his dumplings um, were sold overseas, so um, and a lot of them in the U.S., and I love dumplings, so... Um, Probably I ate some of them, and uh, it didn't make me angry that I ate uh, his dumplings when I believed it was bad. Um, I'm not dead, so it's okay. But um, later I found out that he did nothing wrong, and the corporation and the media uh, launched a smear campaign and killed off this guy for the market share. That made me really angry, and I felt guilty that I was led to believe he was he was um, doing something wrong when he did nothing wrong. So um, that kind of stuck in my mind, and that's why I incorporated that in Curse Bunny. But um, people over a certain age will remember it. As soon as I mention the word dumpling, they will know. And that is kind of bad for the surviving families, and that would be doing like the harm all over again. So I tried to find a similar incident in... Um, history. And during the military dictatorship in the 60s and the 70s, there was a time when the dictator back then uh, put a ban on all rice products, except for table rice. So anything that is not cooked rice for everyday um, consumption, he banned. And it hit really hard um, in the field of traditional rice wine in Korea. So um, 
in certain areas, uh, the breweries, the traditional breweries that have been making rice wine for 500, 400 years, they were suddenly illegal. And this ban went on for 12 years. Can you believe that? Wow. So um, they were like secretly making traditional rice moonshine mm. <laughs> in those areas. Um, but this dictator is dead now and the ban has lifted some decades ago and now traditional rice wine is protected in Korea so the government is trying to support uh, traditional breweries and um, you cannot buy uh, alcohol online but you can purchase traditional rice wine online that that's a way of supporting and protecting rice wine so um, in 2017 when Crispany first came out in Korea um, on a completely unrelated occasion, people on Twitter in Korea found out um, that they could purchase traditional rice wine online, and like the rice wine, all the rice wine started to like sell out. Wow, <laughs> people went gangbusters. Yes, yeah. And I would personally just, I just like to believe that it was the bunny curse. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, but you know, makes me happy to believe that. Wow, I think that there's a real. Um, there's a real question there about, I mean, I didn't realise reading the collection that these stories were so steeped in real events and in historical events and that they were very, in large part, inspired by them. And I think that there's a real grace and a beauty in taking real-life events and fictionalising them to bring them to a different audience um, so that people can kind of engage with, you know, perhaps the morality of those stories in a different way. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your choice to write to write fiction? Um, I write fiction mostly to satisfy myself when I see something or experience something that I cannot grasp or comprehend or emotionally deal with, then I try to make it into a story so that it's um, easier for me to swallow. Uh, so um, that's what I do. <laughs> Thank you, Bora. And you do it um, so well. Thank you so much for being on the show on Triple R. You are listening to Literati Glitterati. Thank you very much to Bora Chung, author of the fantastic collection Cursed Bunny. Um, you can see Bora tonight at the Wheeler Centre. She is speaking at an event called Surreal Realities and Cursed Bunnies with Paige Clark, and you should absolutely go. Triple R. I am delighted to introduce our second guest to the show this afternoon, uh, John Chia. John Chia is an artist, writer, editor, working through radio, podcast, literature, installation, photo media, music and digital publishing. He does it all. He is also the co-editor of Edition 3 of Debris magazine, along with Sher Tan. Uh, the mag is launching tonight at the Alderman and everybody is welcome. Welcome. Hi, John. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. Um, the theme for edition three of the magazine is the urge to know. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're busting for us to find out about? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, look, I think the theme, um, the, the idea of knowledge as a theme for art, literature and whatever, it's it's widely used. It's kind of well explored. There are 
long Latin words for it and, and whatnot. Um, but I think the actual... Sharon and I sort of talked about this, and it's become an in-joke for us. Um, the urge itself, the kind of compulsion towards knowledge, and then how you, um, how you personally and socially respond to that compulsion, how you resist the compulsion in others, how you process it, how you manage it, and how you weigh it against other motivations... Um, that specific thread for us seemed like an interesting underexplored kind of aspect of knowledge and knowing um, and something that you encounter from the day that you start to sense things and start to try to understand the world through your senses before you can speak. So I think it's something that kind of really reaches through all of our lives and um, provides an interesting way into thinking about our lives in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's extraordinary tension in that idea of the urge to know, like almost a feeling of anxiety, you know, like um, you can almost feel it humming underneath, that wanting to know but being like, am I, am I quite sure? I, I'm not sure. Um, how did you work with the contributors um, to sort of deliver on that theme? Um, well, we had an open call for submissions um, and we received a lot of them and they were all fantastic um, and, and really surprising too. I think what was most delightful about them was um, to, like, kind of speaking to what our aspirations were for this as well and for the way Sharon and I like to work and the kind of things that we enjoy ourselves. A lot of them weren't overly serious. A lot of them were actually extremely funny and silly and irreverent, as well as serious and thoughtful, deep. Um, and so I guess we, we kind of together divided up who we would work with and, and just kind of um, tried, to, tried to kind of um, explore and, and expose and expand on the ideas that people came to us with. I mean, much, I suppose, like any other editor like yourself. Yeah, wow. I mean, there is um, some wonderful talent on, on the pages of this magazine. Um, you've got Nayu Gagori, you've got Jamie Marina Lau, you've got Alison Whitaker, you've got um, this fantastic piece from Snack Syndicate that I read after a, a long and wearying day yesterday and that and that nourished me. It's a it's a recipe, but it's also... it's 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 like poetry, really. Um, tell me what the collaborative process was like working with these with these artists. Um, well, I suppose a lot of the artists we have worked with in some way or at some distance before and others not. Um, but I think, um, for me anyway, I can't speak on, on behalf of Sher. Um, it's sort of about, I, I suppose, establishing a common intent um, and then thinking through what those artists do really well. So Snack Syndicate um, write beautifully about the kind of relationships around things and around materials. It didn't really make sense for them to kind of write a straight-up recipe. And um, and when we did ask if they wanted to provide an alternative kind of presentation of that as well, um, they they said that they'd prefer to sort of keep it in the prose form. Which, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's just sort of like, um, you know, we have... We have scope in a magazine, an independent magazine. Um, we have the freedom to kind of make intentional decisions and and to make them on their own basis rather than on the basis of a convention that exists. And I think that really frees us up to work with our contributors to decide what's going to work for the piece and to mediate that too and, and to sort of um, negotiate that if we um, have an opinion or, or, you know, would like to kind of... Um, 
see it go in a different direction as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, John, you are somebody who has worked across multiple mediums. Can you tell us a little bit about the enduring pull of print? You know, Debris Magazine is a beautiful tactile object. Tell us about that. Tell us about what, what draws you to print. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think for me, um, the first thing that comes to mind, and there are many things about print that I love, and then none of them are really romantic. I don't sort of, I don't lust after the kind of beautiful printed object sitting on a windowsill in beautiful afternoon light or anything like that. But it's more about the encounter and it's about the incidental approach that you have to text when you stumble across something. I can't tell you how many times I've been tidying up my bookshelf or tidying up my house or moving um, and I've found something, I've lingered on it, I've maybe flipped it open, I've opened it before but I've found an article or a name or an idea that I hadn't remembered Um, and I think that's what print does much better than almost anything else is it endures, it lingers, it circles back around, it can be passed down, it can be stumbled upon and then it can be recycled. Yes, I love that. Um, and it also promotes, well, I don't know if it promotes it, but it allows um, a kind of chaotic engagement. I realised um, I, I tend to read magazines backwards and I don't, I don't know why. Um, it, it's something that I've done since forever. Maybe I just like to know what the finishing note is and then I can kind of work through it backwards. <laughs> and I wanted to talk to you about, about that exact, exact thing and um, how you went about putting together the pagination of the magazine like is that is what I'm doing absolutely lawless am I going against your track (laughs) listing or what um tell me well I mean you know it's sort of a serving suggestion I suppose like (laughs) (laughs) I like the chaotic engagement a lot and I think there's a lot to it and I mean that's sort of the beauty of I, I mean yeah you can and people who know me know that I do have a million tabs open and half read things go back maybe scroll to the bottom as well or search for a keyword Sorry, sorry, publishers, but, um, <laughs> you know, it does, um, it, it's like um, that feels like a burden, whereas a magazine sitting on the coffee table feels like an opportunity. Um, it's I, an invitation, isn't it's it? It's an invitation mm. and, it, and it hangs there without any sort of particular pressure and it's separate from your other life. It's just there if you have the moment. Um, and I think, you know, we put together the pagination of this magazine um, with with Zenobia Ahmed, who's the designer, who um, who you know needed certain things to sort of shuffle around at certain points, but what we tried to present was one version of progressing through the texts that you know um, separated um, different themes so that it didn't feel like they were doubling down too much, or maybe certain pieces felt like they were handing off um, a theme. So I think there's a short story before the photo essay, and both sort of linger on this idea of um, eroticising an unknown person, you know, um, the, the sort of the urge to know more being a sort of urge to carnal knowledge. So those sorts of themes and trajectories do run through that sequencing, but we're happy for you to be chaotic. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, um, the magazine publishes poetry, non-fiction, short stories, personal essays. As you said, there's a photo essay in there as well. Um, it's being launched at the Alderman tonight from 6 till 8. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what's happening at the Alderman? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So tonight we'll have... Um, I'm sorry, I should have brought the post <laughs> on me because I, I'm just having one of those radio blanks. But we have um, three readers from the magazine, Darcy Height, Lucy Van, and... Um, why is my brain failing me? Uh, Madison Paul. 
Um, he'll be joining us at the Alderman tonight from 6 till 8. And we'll also hear from Aurelia Guo, who's published World of Interiors um, recently. And we just felt that that was kind of a, a beautiful complimentary reading um, and Aurelia happens to be in town. Um, so it's kind of a bonus bonus artist. Yeah, fantastic. And how does it feel? I know you can't speak for sure, uh, for sure, but it sounds like you guys have worked quite closely together. It's always lovely to interview one part of a creative um, partnership and, and hear that resounding we, 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 you know. Um, how, how do you feel, you know, on the cusp of launching this, this big project? Um, what's next? Oh, well, um, I mean, we're thrilled. Like, yeah, again, <laughs> I can't speak for sure, but we have spoken to each other a lot and we were friends before this, hadn't worked together in this way and we've had a great time and it's, you know, it's been a beautiful kind of way to um, expand an in-joke in our friendship into a project that resonates, hopefully, with more people. Um, so what's next, I don't know, but... Um, Tonight will be fun. <laughs> yeah, we have the urge to know. Yeah, fantastic. Um, thank you so much, John Chia, for joining us on Literati Glitterati. Debris Mag Edition 3, The Urge to Know, will be launched tonight between 6 and 8 at the Alderman. Um, it's just about time sadly, for me to get out of here. I'd like to say thank you so much to Bora Chung, who was in the studio earlier, who is also um, having an event tonight at the Wheeler Centre with Paige Clark. Um, they'll, be, they'll be chatting all things Cursed Bunny, uh, so that will be a really fun night. Uh, what's happening next week on Literati Glitterati? Some good stuff. Um, I am interviewing Max Porter, one of my favourite authors of all time, we had a chat. I pre-recorded it. It was fun and raucous, and you can listen to it next week if you like. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.